Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and I play host to the show uh, that explores the great, wonderful tabletop gaming world that Warlord Games presents to us, its fans. Now, um, we have had some pretty spectacular guests over the last couple of episodes, and I think there's only kind of one way we could try and top that, and that's to have two fantastic guests in this episode. So this episode will sort of be a 50-50 affair. And to start out, we have the big man himself. Uh, we usually have him on around Christmas, and he does a wonderful job of playing Santa and telling us about all the awesome stuff that's coming up. Well, we thought we did Christmas would come a little early this year. Uh, so once again joining us on, I guess, his own podcast is the head honcho of Warlord Games itself, the big man, John Stollard. Hey, John, welcome to your show. Hey, Brad. Great to be on again. Oh, John, now you've got to be either tired, excited, maybe emotional, a little bit of all of the above. I mean, you guys had a huge showing at Salute this year, and it just happened. Yeah, we, that was on Saturday, uh, and it was a fabulous show. Uh, I think there's about 5,000 uh, people go to it. I think it's capped at 5,000. And it was a very lovely, busy show, and uh, we had our big stand down there, our big, big trade stand, and that was uh, pillaged throughout the day. Mm -hmm. and we also had some nice demo games as well, and Paul Sawyer came down with a couple of sculptors to show people what's coming out and just to show people how sculpting's done. So it was a, a really exciting stand to go on. Nice. Yeah, I had people literally run into salute because uh, I live in Australia and I wasn't able to make it. Um, but I had friends run into salute, run to the stand, take pictures of all the good stuff and send it directly to me. Um, and so I was sitting on my couch minding my business when all of a sudden, you know, dozens of wonderful photographs were sent to my phone, uh, which was great, but it made me uh, and my wallet very, very sad um, <laughs> that of all the great stuff that's coming up. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of that. Um, now, you guys announced a new game for uh, at Salute this year, something that we weren't expecting. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Because that was a pretty big announcement. Well, um Funnily enough, uh, eight years ago, um, I was talking to uh, my old mate, Gabrio, mm -hmm. who I used to work with at Kane's Workshop, and he got made redundant, and he was feeling a bit down in the mouth, so I took him for a pint uh, to a pub called the, um, what's the pub called? Uh, anyway, it's in Nottingham, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I said to him, uh, why don't you come and join um, Warlord Games? And I said, and... Uh, I said, and let's make a, a game about Napoleonic sailing ships. And that's his passion. So eight years on, he's stayed with me, and he's written a book called um, Black Seas, uh, which is a war and Napoleonic, sa Napoleonic sailing ship game. And uh, he's uh, taken the Cruel Seas, which he helped me develop, mm -hmm. and he's used kind of the command and control system of that to keep it simple mm -hmm. and... Uh, has done this great game and uh we got some ships out on saturday and demoed it for the world oh that's awesome now uh from the press release i saw that this is between one to six hundred to one eight hundred napoleonic uh sailing ships i mean big sh tall ships um but i think yeah. it's recommended at one seven hundred is that right 
Yeah, so they're about three inches long, thereabouts. And we'll be making those in plastic. Uh, so when you get the box set, it will be a bit like Cruel Seas. And they're not the they're not the first rate ships. They're not the great big uh, HMS Victories. These are more uh, more that uh, the uh, frigates and sloops, which did a lot of the work mm -hmm. of the fleets. So you'll get that basics in plastic, and then we'll be doing some of the third and second rate ships in resin, because uh, uh, it's kind of a yeah, it's a, it's the lighter forces again, rather than the huge um, uh, uh, lines of ships. That's right. what's intended. Oh, that's fantastic. But yeah. Knowing how mad gamers are, they'll very quickly be buying lots of resin ships and playing full size, you know, Trafalgar games and Battle of the Nile, etc. What do you mean, John? We're not crazy at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> mm -hmm. So, no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, he's kept it really simple. Um, what puts most people off doing the sale games is the how dull having to pay too much attention to the wind is. Mm. Well, what, what, what he's done is very clever. He's got a very simple rule for the wind, which I, I won't mention now, but it's just very simple. And it dictates who moves first. Uh, but what we do is we assume that the captains of your ships know how to sail their ships, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to worry about all that, all the technical stuff. You just get onto the good stuff of maneuvering and blowing them away with broadsides. Nice. Hooray. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I, I do know that sometimes the minutiae of the game can get a bit uh, much. And when I say the game, I mean sort of gaming in that period. But having a, a game that, you know, is like maybe a bolt action or a, a cruel seas that, you know, has the tactical depth, but by the same token is simple enough for you to, you know, get out and play um, is fantastic. Oh, that's such, that's great news. Um, are you... So what co what kind of forces are you talking about doing initially, or are we still too far out for that? Yeah, we aim to have in the box set um, uh, four frigates and six uh, brig little brigs. So I think it's going to be ten ships, the smaller sorts. Uh, and they could be painted as Spanish or French or British or Dutch, nice. um, I would say, um, and because they were quite generic-looking, the smaller ships. Mm -hmm. Later on, uh, we'll have, when we do the other rating ships, we'll have uh, extra resin parts for the stern parts, which looked quite a bit different on the nations. And then we get to do the uh, amazing American frigates, the, the real cheaty ones, which had twice as many men and guns on as our ones. And so we'll do those in resin, and they'll, they'll look great. Oh, that'll be cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. Oh, John, you get this. Is, ooh, so excited. Um, is now... Am I allowed to ask what else uh, you guys are doing with that, or should we put a cork in that and move on to uh, the ever-popular bolt action? I can't help tell you everything. Uh, I'm in trouble. Yes. Uh, you know, we're, also, we're also doing some Barbary Pirates, the Corsairs, with, uh, 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 with uh, Galeastes, you know, with, with oars as well. Uh, obviously, there's going to have to be a pirate ship. Uh, yes. And no doubt, those bombs, is, you know, the little ones with uh, mortars on, uh, they'll be good fun. Mm -hmm. uh, no doubt fire ships, and oh, there's even talk of um, uh, uh, ghost ships just for a laugh. Oh, and beware, yes. beware the mighty Kraken as well. It might just be an optional rule. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, we've been watching a lot of. Uh, some my wife and I've been watching a lot of pirate television shows, and so as soon as you said pirates, I think my eyes went as wide as dinner plates. That will be fantastic! Oh, I know what I'm playing. 
<laughs> yes. All right. So, well, that's the rage there. Nice. Well, okay. Uh, I know that if I don't bring up bolt action, the internet is going to mug me. So um, I think one of the big parts of your stand at Salute this year was just a, a general showing of a lot of the models that will be part of the new fantastic Korea range. So um, the Korean War. And wow, the models are astonishingly good, John. And I cannot believe how many different models i mean it's it's beyond a full range um for the korean forces so do you want to tell us about that because i mean i swear there was a hundred models out well yeah korean war as um, you and i know brad is mm -hmm. often forgotten war i'm sure it wasn't forgotten by those that were there but uh, right it was quite a nasty business and uh mm. And it was all fought with all World War II kit, wasn't it, really? Whatever everybody had left. Exactly. Uh, uh, so we thought we thought there'd be a sufficient market for a, a short, sharp Korean War range. Because I can imagine a lot of American and British players dusting down their bolt-action armies and padding it out with some new models. Mm -hmm. And uh, this gives them a whole new theater. And, of course, the, um, the Koreans and the Chinese had their own different tactics as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we... Got uh, all the regular North Korean forces, uh, a few irregulars, and then we've got the Chinese main army uh, with all the support weapons and all that goes with that. And of course, we have to have the South Korean army, and then we've got the Americans. A lot of them wearing all the uh, winter kit, you know, frozen chosen and all that. Um, and and the Brits, the Br British, also had a, a wearing sort of kind of funny floppy hats by that stage of, in the summer. So they all look quite a bit different, but they're all, of course carrying bars and M1 carbines and mm -hmm. uh, brown. So, now we've got, the, uh, we've got the Centurion tank for the British, which looks yes. amazing. Such a big tank. Yes. It's huge. It is. And, uh, really cool looking. And uh, we've got the paint job for the Pershings with that sort of dragon's face on it, you know, uh, which mm -hmm. looks So I think it's going to be a big little hit. And, uh, uh, and, Cunning eyes will have noticed that we do have a, a mobile army surgical hospital there. Yes. With some interesting personalities, shall we mm -hmm. say? Uh, um, a Klinger, Address, um, Charles, Hot Lips. No, no one in particular. Hawkeye. No, I, I don't know who you're talking about. It's, it's below the radar. Oh, I like what you did there, sir. I like what you did there. Yes, as someone who uh, would, uh, I guess, enjoy stories from the Korean War with my father as a child, uh, occasionally in front of a television when I was growing up, uh, I'm very excited about the upcoming range. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's uh, there'll be rules for helicopters in there, of course. The first first helicopter rules for bolt action. Really. That's are, are yeah. you guys planning to do uh, full-bore helicopter models to match the range? Well, um, the answer is, simple answer is yes. Um, we, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there are also some wonderful 148-scale plastic ones by Italian people mm -hmm. and, uh, we, the, with the little observation helicopters, and uh, we, we went to try and order some of those in so people could buy them, and uh, they stopped making it, which is really irritating. Oh, that is irritating. Mm. We are going to do some in resin. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I knew that I needed a mobile hospital unit. 
But as soon as you said the word helicopter, again, my eyes went as wide as dinner plates. And I'm thinking of the intro of a television show that I grew up um, with a mobile hospital and a, and a helicopter landing. So, yes, oh, that'll be fantastic to be able to put that on a bolt-action tabletop. Oh, yeah. No, that's really cool. um, so uh, that's written by a couple of American lads as well. Mm. Uh, so they really, they really know their stuff. Uh, that's John Russell, right? Uh, John Russell and uh, one of his mates, uh, I forgot his name, sorry, I, I should have known his name, uh, he did most of the work. I, mm. I, I have his name, I'm sorry about that. Mm, that's all right. Um, that's fantastic. Do we have any idea when Korea is dropping? Because um, I need to plan finances in advance. Oh, well, Korea, uh, that should be about two, two or three months at the most. Ooh. Oh, that is fantastic news. Just in time for summer in the Northern Hemisphere. And also, I know you'll be talking later to Andy, but uh, we dovetailed it in with uh, Mig Alley. Do tell. Uh, that sounds amazing. Oh. Andy will tell you most of that, but it is um, um, Blood Red Skies with Sabres and Migs. Oh, yeah. Oh, John, you need to, you're killing me with this. This is amazing. Um, I, okay, I will definitely talk to Andy about that in a few minutes, but... Wow, uh, that is a lot of fantastic news. Uh, Career fantastic, isn't it? It's great. It is phenomenal, and it gives us a brand new way to play the games that we are already playing and loving. Um, that's just so cool. It was interesting, because uh, I was on the stand uh, all day at Salute. Uh, mm. Actually, lots of cool stuff for people to look at, but the most popular thing definitely was the Korean War figures. I think 80% of people wanted to see the Korean War stuff, which is uh, intriguing. It's uh, good news. We had uh, some lovely French-Indian War stuff there, because that's going to be coming out in a month's time. Mm. Rogers Rangers and all that. Uh, and uh, we have, obviously, more World War II. We've got the Normandy campaign for bolt action coming up soon. Nice. That's basically, um, uh, yeah, the American beaches. Uh, and then in the summer, we're going to have a summer campaign which will be Normandy, but that will be land, sea, and air. So we're going to try and combine our three systems to, to make it into a big campaign. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Uh, so you're going to link Blood Red Skies, Cruel Seas, and Bolt Action? We are. Nice. Uh, any tidbits on how that's going to work, or should we just uh, hold our breath and uh, wait and see what happens? Just hold your breath. But we're okay. going to try and get to, uh to help us uh, put it all together, because... Uh, he is the mastermind of bolt action. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fantastic news. Now, I couldn't help but notice at the Warlord stand that there were a few other bits and pieces that were sort of in the corners of pictures that you guys leaked, like, oh, should I say plastic Italian tanks? Oh, yeah, yeah. We've uh, Italieri, who we work in partnership with, mm -hmm. taken them a little while. But they finally got the M1340, the main Italian battle tank, uh, oh, yeah. which is looking really splendid. And... Uh, that should be coming out shortly, and uh, in the box you'll also be able to make the Semivente, the 75 mil assault gun from it. It's like the, Ita the Italian Stug 3, if you like. Yes. So uh, that's going to be good news for Italian players. So you, wait, you can make both the assault gun and the main tank in that one box? That's right. Oh, I'm buying a bunch. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Well, the poor old Italians, uh, you know, they suffer without their, their, um, their armor, but uh, the Semivente was a good piece of kit. And uh, yes. uh, even up a bit in the desert. Mm -hmm. And uh, German forces used them in Italy after the uh, after the Italians surrendered. So yeah, yeah. they must have yeah. been good. 
that's uh, that's uh, yeah, that's well spotted. That's good news for the Germans to add a, add a some event to you. So, and of course, the Australians uh, famously used the M13 and 40 at Tobruk by painting those huge kangaroos on them. I think that's those are right. going to be on, on the. I think we're going to have them on the transfer sheet, so you diggers can actually have, add those to your Eighth Army. Oh, that's fantastic! That's great, John. I love it. Nice. All right. Uh, any other tidbits uh, that we want to talk about for bolt action, sir? Uh, well, let let me jump uh, a slightly tangential uh, way then, because uh, there were some fantastic releases, or at least uh, spoilered pictures of some of the Conflict Forty Seven models that we've had rules for in some of the new books, but we haven't necessarily had the models for. So all of a sudden we have the new British um, commandos with the assault rifles. Um, there's a, the Merlin uh, mech. There's the, um, the, oh, I think it's called the Locust, the German jump um, walker. And there are just so many fantastic models, alternates to the bear sculpts of the giant humanoid bears that the Soviets have. Um, there's three new sculpts for that. And it was just really, uh, just really great to, uh, to see those models. Um, having looked at the rules for quite a while and gone, Ooh, I really want to put those on the table. And now to have that available is going to be really great. Yeah. The boys from uh, conflict 47, they, they, they were on the corner of our stand and they were, they were busy all day. They were answering questions like mad. And they had a lovely display table, and uh, as you say, he's showing off some lovely new stuff. Uh, yeah. Um, that, those new German, that the Germans we bought out last week. Um, what's his name? Uh, particularly sinister German. Um, marvelous model. Yes. Marvelous models. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, Clockwork Goblin does great work, and uh, I'm so glad you guys are putting it out because yeah, it just it's a wonderful. As we were saying a minute ago, it's a wonderful way to play a different set of bolt action rules. Um, it's just another way to enjoy bolt action on your tabletop, which is great. Well, John, of course, you have come on today to talk Cruel Seas, and uh, we've kind of been tiptoeing around it. So uh, as much as I want to talk about Salute, let's get into uh, some unpleasant waters, shall we? Um, how's the game going? Because I, I've, seen just, I've seen it flying off the shelves of the local shop, and um, I'm, I'm curious. I've seen tons of people playing it online. I haven't had a chance to play it myself, but everyone tells me it's a ton of fun. Um, it's got to be doing well for you guys. Well, Cruel Seas, uh, yeah, it's kind of a niche of a niche. Um, uh, naval gaming has always been a, a sideshow. And uh, mm. I guess for 1939-45, uh, coastal warfare is even more of a niche because it's, it's not the Bismarck or HMS Missouri. Mm. But I just I just thought it's got uh, – I just thought it had enough in it if uh, – and do a build it and they will come. So it's been my passion for years, motor torpedo boats. Mm -hmm. and I thought, well, if you make them big enough that you can put crews on them and you make them big enough that you can tell whether it's a 20 mil or a Bofors or a 57 or whatever it is, then people will get interested in the effect of the weapons and everything. So we picked the 1300 scale, which is, of course, a classic uh, micro armor scale, really. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get just get loads of character into the boats and, after you do a little bit of research, you don't need to do much. You find that actually, uh, they almost all weren't just painted grey. They're painted all manner of colours, fantastic colour schemes, um, uh, crazy stuff. I mean, particularly the Yank stuff, you know, the, mm -hmm. in the Pacific. Some of it was dazzle painted, the, the black and white stripes in the Mediterranean. Yeah. It looks amazing. So, it does. you know, it's great fun. And uh, um, 
and each of the each of the sides has a different way of fighting too because the Americans, um, uh, they, being very practical, they just kept screwing extra weapons on them. <laughs> By the end of the war, like a pocket bloody battle, battleship coming at you. Mm-hmm. It's impressive they had on it, and uh, very exciting. And then, of course, you've got the Japanese suicide boats and uh, mm-hmm. German radio-controlled boats and miniature submarines. Uh, oh, uh, the uh, F-lighters, which are these uh, uh, really tough landing craft bristling with guns. Uh, Siebel ferries, which are the sort of pontoon things, which the Germans use very cleverly in the in the Mediterranean, and uh, oh, and all manner of British kit, you know, their motor torpedo boats and the motor gunboats later on, uh, all heavily armed. It's uh, no, it's cracking stuff, and uh, uh, I'll be, if I'll be honest, we can't make enough of it to keep it in stock, Brad. It's uh, we're, we we farmed out some stuff to other companies to make because it's difficult to make enough. So uh, we caught ourselves on the hop a bit. But there are six fleets. We've got the British and German, mm-hmm. uh, Italian, American, and Japanese and Russian. So six ways of doing it. And I've just commissioned uh, John Lambshead to do an extra supplement for us, which he's working on, which should cover Finland and the Baltic and a few extra new ships, including a German helicopter carrier. How cool is that? That's awesome. Uh, lots more scenarios as well. So watch out for that later on this year. Oh, that's cool. And are the other nations going to get the full list as well? Yeah, we'll definitely add on extra ships and do and, and do the stat lines for them as well because we, you just can't cover everything in one game. No, no, of course not. Uh, especially in a war where uh, it was a constant escalation in technology and things changed so radically from the beginning to the end um, in you know a five year or depending on where you are in the world longer. Uh, conflict. Oh, that's fantastic, John. Um, what are some things that we can look forward to in the short term? Because it sounds like that's a little bit down the track. Yeah, short term is getting out some of the more interesting boats. The, uh, one of the most used boats in the Kriegsmarine was the R boat or the round boat, which is um, a broader than an E boat and a lot slower. And they probably built four or five hundred of them. And they were they were the maid of all work, if you like. They did mine sweeping, mine laying. SE rescue, convoy escort, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Not glamorous. But there were hundreds of them, and uh, and you, they're often protecting convoys. And uh, uh, that's that's coming out this Friday, which is neat. It's got a 37 mil cannon on it and a 20 mil. Nice. So it's quite tough. Um, and um, I think when you read lots of the reports of um, American and British actions actions against e-boats. They keep reporting knocking out e-boats. I reckon at night and at speed they were knocking out our boats, really, not e-boats. There weren't that many e-boats made, you know, uh, yeah. really, and they were tough things. But you know, if you can knock out an R-boat, fantastic. But uh, so that's coming out. Then next week we should have the, as I mentioned, the Siebel Ferry, which is armed with twin 88 millimeter guns and t- twin flak, twin uh, quads as well. It's a nasty piece of work. Uh, then, uh, then the F lighters, and then we've got more uh, better armed British ships with uh, uh, automatic six pounders. Oh, you name it, it's coming out. Oh, and uh, we'll bring out the uh, Thunderbolt, which is the uh, quadruple um, quadruple twenty mil cannon that they fitted on some PT boats near the end of the war. Oh. Nasty. Yeah, that's the American way to stick more guns on it. Look, I'm not saying I'm proud of my upbringing when I hear that, but. I'm proud of my upbringing when I hear that. Uh, yes, um, that is the American way. Truth, freedom, and strapping as many guns on your boat as possible. Let's see the work. 
That's it. That's it. Well, that's awesome. Well, John, have you been playing a lot of Cruel Seas yourself? I know you played it a lot before release, but now that it's out in the wild, have you been enjoying any uh, good games? Oh, I've been um, kind of umpiring games rather than playing them. You see what I mean? I uh, do. I quite, uh, I, I, I quite it's funny. I go to a war games club uh, every second week and mm-hmm. uh, have done for 40 years, in fact. And I actually find I just, just really enjoy watching the games now. And just uh, rather than actually playing them, I get as much fun watching a game and just chatting and watching other people play as I do playing. Well, as someone who's brought uh, countless toys to countless boys' toy boxes over the years, um, I, I can't imagine. Uh, I know I jokingly call you the Santa Claus who comes and tells us about all the great stuff that's coming at Christmas. But um, I, I guess in a very real way, you really have made it possible for a lot of the toys that we play with to come to, to even exist in the games that we play. Um, you got to take some satisfaction in sitting back and watching uh, the people enjoy the fruits of your labors. Well, that's a very kind thing to say, Brad. And it's, uh, yeah, it's true. I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it is. I am, uh, it does give me a nice warm feeling seeing people having a laugh and, uh, and playing our games and in the fashion that we would like people to play the game. I not and madly competitive, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, right. uh, I just like people who are a bit more romantic, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. and enjoy playing. Yeah, having a good time, enjoying each other's company, you know, destroying their models, having a good time. Yeah, to crush them into the ground. <laughs> exactly. I I do remember the last time we played, John, and uh, yeah, I, I think that was exactly how it went. It was a very fine and gentlemanly, gentlemanly experience, and there was lots of pummeling each other's models into the ground. Yep, that's definitely how it works. Uh, Right on. Sorry, uh, so what are some of the things that you've seen people playing uh, Cruel Seas-wise? Anything, uh, any any memorable sea tales to tell? Um, It's um, the most, the people who get most frustrated when they're playing it when, uh, when the torpedoes don't go off. If you've got a green crew, you got a fifty percent chance of your torpedo not 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 going off when mm-hmm. once you hit. And that just gets people insanely angry. It's most <laughs> amusing. Uh, and if you've got a good crew, you've only got a one in six chance of it not not working. But it's sometimes people just roll badly, and so they get their hits with the torpedoes in, and it, and then only for it to be dud, it gets them very down in the mouth, and uh, uh, and amuses me greatly. Um, and but if you read if you do read the stuff, they were all they were always firing dud torpedoes yeah. or sending. Setting at the wrong depths and everything going wrong. It just happened. Uh, now, if people get too frustrated with that, you can duck, duck that rule if you want or just move it up one pip on the dice mm-hmm. if you get too frustrated with that. Because uh, a couple of people say, oh, I never hit with torpedoes. I think, well, you're probably not doing it right. But uh, yeah. if you roll badly, you roll badly, don't you? Yes, exactly. Uh, as we fondly say down here, um, when you're playing a different Warlord game, sometimes bolt action just happens. Um, you know, you roll a foobar, something goes horribly wrong, you hit yourself with your own artillery, you know, things happen. Um, and, you know, that happens on the, in, you know, in real combat, and that happens on the, uh, on the tabletop, sometimes in Warlord games, and, you know, you just have to roll with the punches, can't take it too seriously. But if you're taking, if you're frustrated that, uh, you know, on a 50% chance your torpedo isn't working, well, maybe you should upgun your crew, um, you know, make them a little more right. veteran. Trade them back. That's right. That's right. We've been, playing, 
we've been playing a lot of black powder as well as a as a as a company. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Use the games at the moment. Sorry. I don't know why, but they are, and uh, that's uh, everybody's getting different armies. Uh, nice. It's good to see. Yeah, it uh, still looks splendid. Oh, oh we got talking about black powder. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing we had, uh, which I don't know if you saw it on the pictures, we've got some uh, plastic uh, Crimean Russians coming out. Yes, they look fantastic. They look very good in their grey great coats. They look, you know, they're very somber appearance, but they look great. So. Uh, they should be coming out in oh, about six weeks, I guess. So we'll, we'll we'll put out our Crimean range again, and we've got some British foot and horse artillery and some Russian artillery as well in metal. So uh, we can fight some of those battles. Oh, that's great. Uh, so many great things coming up in the, in the very immediate future for us to look forward to. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, John, uh, I hate to do this to you. I think uh, it is almost time for me to shuffle off and have a chat with our good friend Andy Chambers. Um, before we roll out and say goodbye, um, is there anything else you wanted to bring up today, sir? No, I just want to thank you for your excellent uh, interviewing skills. Oh, please. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and it's lovely to talk to all our fans and uh, customers out there. Uh, thank you very much is what I'd say. Well, on behalf of the fans who are listening, um, who were uh, frothing at the mouth over the salute stand, let me just say thank you. Uh, and we look forward to uh, buying your excellent wares, sir. And uh, yeah, it, uh, for me, it's a pleasure to, to talk because I love the stuff you guys do. And as uh, I'm not sure some of the people back home know, you and I have known each other for a very long time. And it is always a pleasure <laughs> to, uh, to, to hear your voice, sir. Well, until the next time, take care. That's it. Well, again, uh, stay tuned, boys and girls, because we are going to be talking to the one and only Andy Chambers next. And we are back with one of the greats of wargame writing. Now, of course, we have talked to this fine gentleman several times in the past, and he has been a prolific author uh, of many game systems, quite a few things for Warlord, including some of the greatest bolt-action books, uh, including uh, Strontium Dog, uh, but of course, here to talk about Blood Red Skies, which is also his creation, and something he spent a lot of time working on, is the one and only Andy Chambers. Andy, welcome back to the Warlord cast. How you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Nice to be back. Yes, and we were just talking about how um, off-air, I know you are a very talented author, but it is that time of year where writing gets to be a bit hard, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, the sun is shining outside. It all looks very pleasant, blue skies. It would be nice to be out there, but here I am, working away at my desk. Slaving away so that we'll be happy. (laughs) <laughs> all for you guys it really is i sacrificed my future happiness just for you thank you thank you andy i appreciate it uh well all right um blood red skies has been doing very well um lots of people have been playing it it's been all over social media um you got to be happy about that as the author of this game yeah it it makes me very happy indeed it, it brings a tear to my eye at times it does to see people's squadrons of painted aircraft because um 
you create a game system, you know, it, it, it's a bit like throwing a party, really, and sending out invites mm-hmm. and hoping people will come. And you know yeah. that moment where you sit at your party with all the hors d'oeuvres out on the table, hoping that people are going to show up and actually eat them. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's always very reassuring when they do actually show up and start eating your hors d'oeuvres. Um, and, yes, it's been really, really good fun. I mean, it's for me, in many ways, it's the first time I've had a game where I've been, like, able to actively participate on social media a lot and hear people's concerns and people's thoughts and people's ideas and people's hopes as they come up uh, and kind of act on them and, and try to build them into future products, as it were. So it, it's it's all been very organic feeling, to use a, a tremendously hippie word for it. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, how has that social interaction um, changed the way that you've looked at the game? Because uh, we really are in sort of the landscape where game designers and companies really have to interact with the public. Um, they actually get a bad reputation if they don't. Um, <laughs> so how how does that work for you? Because I know everyone sort of approaches it differently, and I can't imagine it's always easy to interact with people like me, Joe Public. <laughs> no, you're always a darling, an absolute charm, don't you? You lie like a rug. <laughs> well, um, going back, going back in time some, I was very fortunate in many ways because, you know, I, I worked uh, with Games Workshop, I worked mm-hmm. on White Dwarf magazine, used to produce articles every month for it. So there was a, a kind of like an avenue there for me to try things out, to try ideas and suggest things and get a bit of feedback. Uh, admittedly, a lot of it came through snail mail in those days, but mm-hmm. to get some feedback there. And, and I kind of liked it. I did it for Battlefleet Gothic, where I kind of did a very simplified, like cut down set of the rules and put them in White Dwarf and said, you know, tell me what you think. And from that, uh, it became very apparent. It's like one of the things that wasn't really a feature was like, you know, space fighters, attack craft as they Mm -hmm. went into the game in the end. But everybody really wanted them, you know, Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yeah. um, They'd all taught us that space war meant space fighters. Mm -hmm. So uh, that gave me some good food for thought. And I went, you know, and worked in a system for, for dealing with them, whereas they, they hadn't featured at all before because I'd been focused on it being, you know, Space Battle of Jutland, very World War One, big mm-hmm. cannons, and that's all that really mattered. Um, so that coming to an understanding of what other people's expectations were and desires was very important there. And so I've always had a, a sort of like a lot of empathy for doing that where I can, uh, which is often isn't the case. You can't often talk about your products before you do them right. for a variety of reasons, most of which is expectations. You know, if you build too many expectations, then don't fill them. Then people get very sad and indeed angry. Yes. So uh, it's often wiser not to talk too much in case people, you know, build up this great golden edifice that they expect to come to. And then when it's not what they expect, kind of regardless of what merit or lack of merit it has, you know, they're going to be disappointed and you, you want to try and avoid disappointment. Oh. It's not a good thing. No, it's not. Not when you're trying to get people excited about something. Exactly. It's kind of the opposite of what you want. So, but on the other hand, you know, if, if you do have a, a forum where you can talk about ideas and kind of suggest and, and listen to things, you can hopefully build towards something that people will be generally excited to see. Hmm. And that's what I hope we're doing for Blood Red Skies. Then you can see how all that came together. I like that's what I'm hoping there. we've got for Blood Red Skies. So to give you an example with Blood Red Skies directly, hmm. um, one of the things that's that when we did the game initially, we did a, a basic starter set with a load of aircraft in it and everything you needed to play. 
game of the box, yeah, mm -hmm. with the idea you could sell it into anywhere, you know, it could go into high street stores or bookstores or museums or anything like that. Yeah. Now, it's been picked up an awful lot uh, as a game by very dedicated air enthusiasts, shall mm. we say. And, you know, they want more. They, they want a, a broader base for the, for the game itself than just that box set. So, for one thing, we've been doing sets of expansion cards for the different air forces uh, based around nationalities. So, the RAF one's out now. The mm -hmm. Luftwaffe is just about to hit, I think which have got things like profile cards for aircraft that, you know, we don't make as squadrons, but the people may have them or can source them from elsewhere. So good on you. Here's the, the stats for those aircraft, nice. uh, the cards that you need to go with them, some extra cards, some different doctrine and theater cards and stuff like that. And some new stuff I wanted to introduce to the game system, which is equipment card, which is stuff like drop tanks, which are always on an aircraft, but can be and make a difference to it when they are. Yeah. But also stuff like a lot of air forces that do things like uh, put extra heavy guns to try and intercept bombers with. The Luftwaffe mm -hmm. did this. You know, underwing gun pods, they might have those. Or they might take guns out to actually lighten an aircraft and make it more agile in the air. Uh, so there's the equipment cards are for all those kind of tweaking from so you can like vary up your base profiles a little yeah. bit uh, or maybe take something that gives you a little bit of an extra bumpy bonus at times and so on so it's, it's just another thing to fiddle with basically when you're building um your squadron your air force to fight with and that kind of thing is important when you're gaming is you, know, you you want a few different dials to twist and levers to pull when it comes mm. to putting your force together yeah absolutely it allows you to really individualize your force and make it sort of unique, um, especially if you're trying to theme it historically or if you just really want to make it your own. Mm, absolutely. So we've got a, a whole bunch of these expansion sets that we've done, which are coming out alongside the various squadron boxes we're coming out. Uh, so we've done one for Japan and the Soviet Union, the Americans as well. And eventually, eventually, uh, we'll hopefully be able to diversify down into doing things like Italians too. Um, and that's very much come from sort of like seeing the desire that was there for people like not just to buy the base game and then wait on squadrons to come out, but be able to use their own stuff. So the expansion sets a, a good response to that, I feel. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that's great. Now, I understand that you're also working towards something that John was talking about uh, previously in the episode um, that might expand the Blood Red Skies universe quite a bit. Yeah, we're taking our first tentative step outside of World War II and into the jet age uh, with a little supplemental part to a supplement actually called um, MIG Alley. And what we're doing is a squadron box with a couple of MIG-15s and a couple of F-86Fs, um, Sabres, use the mm -hmm. right word for them, Sabres, <laughs> yes. um, because they're, they're two opposing sort of like second generation jets that fought each other during the korean war and the korean war is fascinating because it kicks off only five years after the end of world war ii so you've got a lot of world war ii aircraft still flying in it you know they're, they're using uh, as they call them f-51s then which are p-51s they've just mm -hmm. changed the naming on them um and you get spitfires still flying you know super sea fires as mm -hmm. they are and so on and so on. so th th there's a lot of crossover and yet you've got these I say second generation because first generation jets is things like your Gloucester Meteors and your ME262s. That's right. 
Whereas your MiG-15s and your F-86s, they, they've actually taken another step beyond that. They are so much faster. They operate at such a high altitude and all the rest of it that they're kind of in a new league. But they do interact with each other, you know, and you get them attacking and being shot down by prop planes in that conflict. So we're trying them out. We're trying out the jet rules. Um, it's actually the the core rules for it are part of, well, they're included in the Migali box because we've got the profile cards uh, and the uh, trait cards that make those jets work uh, with Blood Red Sky system. Nice. And I, I'm actually working on a, a combined compendium, compendium rule book called Airstrike, Blood Red Sky's Airstrike, mm -hmm. for later this summer, which has got a section in it about uh, the Korean War and MIG Alley in particular, and doing games with those, and some different stats for some of the different jets as well. Oh, that's um, fascinating. So, so, and this all ties together with Bolt Action doing um, Korean War stuff as well. So we're, we're making a little step there. It doesn't mean that we're moving Blood Red Skies into the jet age yet. It's just our first tentative step there. Our focus is still very much on World War II for the foreseeable future. But it, it's fun to play around on the peripheries, if you know what I mean. Definitely. Especially since, as you say, in the Korean War, so many World War II era um, bits of technology exist. Mm -hmm. And we're an integral part of those conflicts. I, I just, just the interaction between those vehicles sounds fascinating, and I, I look forward to seeing it on the tabletop. Now, you did mention that that's only part of airstrike. Um, what else is there? Um, the the main core of airstrike is new scenarios and uh, new rules to cover bombing, torpedoing, dive bombing, strafing, that kind of thing, so that you can interact more with surface targets. Uh, and a bunch of different scenarios built around that idea for like escorting bombers into bomber target or to you know attack shipping or what have you. Um, so it's expanded up the number of scenarios quite a lot. We've only got we've got five I think in the base game and there's seven more added in um, airstrike. Nice. Uh, and a lot of stuff about different targets as well because of course th there's a big difference between trying to you know sink a U-boat. Uh, and a battleship or, you know, destroy a factory or a bunker complex or an airfield. And rules about flak as well, because, of course, that suddenly becomes a big concern when you try to attack ground targets. It is, yeah. So there's a lot of stuff for that. And um, in the course, again, this is, this is where the feedback thing comes in. In the course of, of working on it, we've also come to the idea that we should include all of the rules that are in the basic uh, starter set as well. Put them all into one book in one place. Take the opportunity to um, not change anything, but uh, you know, talk about things and perhaps explain them a little bit better than when in small leaflet-sized books. Mm. So it it will be a combined you know rule book and compendium for Blood Red Skies, which will have you know all the wordy bits you should need. So should you not want to indulge in buying the uh, starter set itself, you can just buy that rule book and maybe the expansion set for the particular Air Force you want and be away, oh, uh, which is just a, another good way of presenting things, particularly to people who've already maybe, you know, been collecting aircraft for a while or are interested in just getting in on a, you know, on the ground floor, as it were. So uh, it's it's turning into this great panacea, everything to all men, blood red skies nice. in airstrike. Ho, ho. <sighs> that Excellent. will not be the case, of course. But that, that's the hope. That's, uh, you know. Nice. shining uplands that we're moving towards and you said that would be coming out uh in the summer in the northern hemisphere 
yes indeed uh, we'd originally got it pegged for august i think it's slipped back now it'd probably be september and knowing the way things that go you know it may slip back a little bit further than mm-hmm. that which would be sad i'd rather see it out sooner than later frankly but we've got to figure out um originally we talked about doing it as a box as well mm-hmm. but now that we're going to do a book uh, it's like do we put cards into that book do we try and do a gatefold and have actual proper cards do we do um just print out sheets at the back so you can make your own cards and yeah it's a bit rubbish but there you go mm-hmm. or what you know or do we just ignore it and say no you can get your cards in other places mm-hmm. uh, this can just be a book and stand alone and be tidy that tidier that way so that there's a little bit of uh, how to present it exactly to yeah. figure out yeah but i've got most of the uh, the text figured out now Nice. Oh, that gives us a lot to look forward to, Andy. That's cool. Um, is there anything, I know you've mentioned a few things, but um, is there anything in the short run that we can look forward to um, while that is being finalized and before the Korean War uh, conflict hits both the Bolt Action tabletop and the uh, Blood Red Skies tabletop? Uh, we've got a number of new squadrons and new aces coming out over the next few months. We're kind of filling in a bit more with the, the Japanese, for example, doing some late war Japanese planes, cool. uh, some more Soviet ones. We've just had uh, Falcon Squadron coming out, Johnny Red stuff, mm-hmm. which, while it's based on 2008 comic strip, one of the nice things about Johnny Red is that they're absolutely serious about the planes they use in it. So they use Pucker, you know, Russian aircraft or indeed lend lease ones. So it's a mixed box, uh, which is unusual for us. We don't usually do a mixed box of different types of plane in the same squadron. But for this one, we did. And it's given us a chance to do uh, stuff we wouldn't have touched otherwise, things like MiG 3s and I 16s, which wouldn't have come up for a very long time. So we've got squadron boxes for those coming out as well. So if you don't want to buy a mixed box for Johnny Red, you can wait for a while and get a full squadron box of I 16s or what have you. They are, uh, sorry, to clarify, I-16s are one of the uh, sort of like 30s-ish planes that I generally classify as clown car planes because they they look like clown cars. They really do. They're they're just so adorable looking. (laughs) They really don't look like those those sort of mean, cheetah-like late war fighters at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have their own charm, it must be said, but they're, they're quite different. So the, the scenarios for airstrike for me have been the really interesting part of it because they're, they're all kind of motivated from a, a historical standpoint. Mm. Um, and they're also very much a response to what I saw as soon as we'd launched Blood Red Skies and the starter box went out there and so on. Uh, we'd have the good fortune at the time to have a, uh, a set of, one two hundred scale bombers and transport planes from Zvezda mm. that we could make available as squadron boxes, uh, and people really seized on them. A lot of people picked up on them, and they look really great. Once you've got some single engine fighters next to multi engine bombers or what have you, it looks cool as hell. So people were playing their games with these a lot. And there's only one scenario in the starter set that uses um, bombers at all. It's an escort mission, bomber mm. escort. It's called originally enough, and. So I was like, well, we must be able to get more out of them, more than that. And particularly for things like the transport planes, it was like, well, we really need a special scenario for that because transports and fighters don't interact very happily most of the time, as you might imagine. Yeah. One shoots down the other quite readily. Um, So I kind of started out by doing a a transport hunt scenario because transports do their best to make life difficult for hunting fighters by staying really low, you know, kind of like treetop height. Mm-hmm. 
because they're really hard to pick up on. Um, so I built this whole scenario around basically searching for transports, and if you spotted some, trying to shoot them down, and some enemy fighters in the area trying to interfere in it. It actually turned out into a really entertaining little scenario in its own right, and it got some use out of those, you know, Ju-52s or Dakotas or what have you that people have, which normally, as I say, shouldn't be anywhere near uh, single-engine fighters. Mm. And better than that, I mean, we have historical examples where, you know, as much as it shouldn't happen, it did happen. Things like Stalingrad, where the German Luftwaffe was trying to fly in supplies in the face of uh, Soviet fighters, or a particularly ugly incident that I read about, which uh, they call the Palm Sunday Massacre, Ooh. which is uh, North Africa. Basically, once the, the Axis forces there have been sort of squeezed in to like Tunis, and were just getting their supplies mainly flown in at that point because... Uh, there was enough like naval aircraft, submarines uh, and MTBs, all the cruel sea stuff going on as well, that mm. was sinking all of the Axis transports that were bringing supplies to the Africa Corps at that point. So they were having to fly stuff in. Uh, so there was a lot of like transport, JU-52s, but also the really big stuff. Have you ever heard about the Gigants, that they have these massive gl- yeah. gliders that they hung six engines off in the end? They were flying those across as well. Wow. Uh, at, and eventually, of course, the Allies caught wind of this and organized uh, a sustained effort to sort of like block air transport coming across to help out the Africa Corps, and which resulted in the Palm Sunday Massacre as like several squadrons of fighters uh, seized upon all the JU-52s that were like streaming across at the time. And there's like over 200 of them brought down wow. uh, in this, like in the course of one afternoon. It was it was a mess, man. It was an absolute mess. Ironically, like, nearly all of them seemed to like basically crash landed voluntarily rather than get shot down. They're just like get it on the deck now. Wow. So they they, they end up with just an absolute trail, sort of like a, a wash of like crashed Ju-52s along the shoreline in the aftermath of this particular event. So inspired by that and inspired by what, you know, modelers choices people were making, I thought let's put a scenario together for that. And that got me to thinking about. Um, other sort of famous incidents where air power was used in a particular way. And when you start to look into this, of course, you, you hear about the famous ones and go, oh, yeah. And then you look into it and it's like, well, this kind of stuff was going on not quite every day, but certainly every week. Mm. And when I say the famous ones, the one I'm thinking of, I don't know if you've ever heard of this one, but the Amian prison break. Okay, I have heard of it, but I couldn't tell you what anything about it. <laughs> Operation Jericho. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Just before D-Day, just mm-hmm. before D-Day, um, the Gestapo, in suitably you know comic villain style, swept up uh, a load of French that they suspected of having sympathies for the resistance. They didn't actually know if they were resistance members or not. They suspected. And they stuck them all in Amiens prison. And as it happened, they got lucky. And they got one of the really key French resistance leaders in the area. They got him locked up. Uh, and he knew some stuff about D-Day coming up. And there was a grave concern that they that he would crank, they would get to him uh, and find out, you know, the gig was up, that D-Day mm. was coming. So this is all proper, absolute boy's own stuff. So within, I can't remember if it's 24 or 48 hours, I think it's 24, <clears throat> but someone will doubtless can correct me on that. It was a ridiculously short period of time. They put together this mission to go and basically bomb Amiens prison to help the French resistance escape 
uh, and run off into the woods. And they coordinate this with the local French resistance, so they're ready to receive them. And they send across um, like half a squadron of mosquitoes, low level, in the middle of winter, uh, scudding under the clouds sort of thing, just above the ground. <coughs> and they, they basically bomb either end of the prison, where the, the garrisons with the guards are, open breaches in the wall, and it lets uh, the resistance fighters all run away. And it actually worked. They got away. The guy in question got yes. away. Um, unfortunately, it cost... Um, it was Pick Pickford was the guy who was actually uh, the ace leading that mission. It cost mm. him his life. Oh. But other than that, it was a successful mission. So that, that was what I took as kind of my model for a, a scenario I called Surprise Attack, mm. which is all about trying to stalk up to your target, catch it by surprise, and then get out of there while the going is good. Uh, I actually played one of these with uh, Richard over at Warlord last week um, because a, a more commonplace example of that kind of thing is things like uh, coming and raiding the enemy airfield at dawn. Mm -hmm. You know, you catch their aircraft on the ground, bomb them, ha ha ha, yeah, exactly. strafe the area for a while, you know, blow up their fuel trucks, all the rest of it, uh, and, you know, have your way with them. Problem with doing that, of course, is that there's a lot of flack. And if they're alerted yes. to your presence, then it's liable to go the other way. Uh, and become quite unpleasant so yes. it's all about trying to get the drop and get surprise more than anything else so in surprise attack there's a special rule where there's basically a chance of the alert going up each turn uh, you can mitigate that by staying low staying disadvantaged uh, and or approaching through we put some terrain rules in as well kind of specifically for this more than anything else so if your targets like um, at sea or next to the sea or next to water, it's quite easy to sneak up on them because you can stay ridiculously low. Mm -hmm. Or if there's hills or something like that, you can use the hills to shield your approach. All this sort of stuff. So just for that scenario, that becomes the order of the day. It's, it's almost like a stealth infiltration with aircraft scenario. And then once it kicks off, it's all about running like hell before the angry defenders come along and shoot your planes down. Exactly. And that's the way that the victory points are kind of like kicked on that one. In the example I did with Richard, we actually managed to pull it off. We had a couple of Messerschmitt 110s uh, that came in with bombs, basically, to suppress the local flak on the airfield. And they managed to pull that off before the alert went off. So there was no flak on the airfield by the time the, the bombers turned up to do their low-level runs and drop bombs on it. So they got away with it. Uh, and we, we scuttled off in fairly short order. And what uh, response the Spitfires could get together was much, much sort of like stymied by the fact that they'd been bombed on their own airfield mm -hmm. before things even kicked off. <clears throat> so it was a, a good kind of like very narrative scenario, that one. Yeah, I was about to say that is a fantastic way um, to, to really in introduce a lot of narrative play to the to the tabletop. That is, yeah, that is really cinematic and fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, and um, the the more kind of like uh, just grind your way across there and try and drop bombs on it uh, is a scenario called Priority Target, where the alert's already gone up. So there's flak, and there's light flak, there's flak barrages, defending fighters coming in and all that sort of stuff. And basically, you're trying to shepherd a body of bombers across to go and bomb the target. So that one's less about sneaking in and going in at low level and strafing. It's more about trying to keep things together at a slightly higher level. Mm and not get shot out of the sky in the process. But both of these scenarios are ones that um, they include bombers as, all, they're, they're actually a free part of the attacking force. So the idea is that you would pick out your selection of fighters to go and escort the bombers in, 
the defenders will pick out their defending fighters and so on. And you just have the, the bombers as a bonus. Because mm. I ran up against this, uh, I don't know, in some ways it's a philosophical issue more than anything else. People going like, well, what's the points cost on bombers? And it's like, well, that's difficult because if you're trying to compare them directly to fighters, they're just not the same things. It's right. like trying to compare a, a horse to a cow yeah. and say, you know, in terms of a steeplechase, which one of these is more valuable? Yes. Yeah, not the cow. So when it came to bombers, I, I was kind of, I've had this hesitation about actually giving them a points value because I think it's false to think of them in that way. They're, they're actually more like a moving objective or yes. victory point source for one side or the other. And I've tried to treat them in the scenarios. So that's that's how it is this year. Probably next year I'll be putting points values on bombers, having been yelled at by everyone. <laughs> yes, the internet will tell they, they, they will. They will. I'll get to find this out in grave detail, I'm sure. Yes. And I'll probably rescind it. And I've already, to be honest, uh, run up against... There are some things which are kind of ground-attacky planes which are fairly passable as fighters as well. They're rare, but there are a few of them. Um, one example is the A36 Apache. Mm. But you've never heard of that, have no, you? No, I have not. Okay. It is a, you've heard of a P-51 Mustang? I have, yes. Same thing. Okay. <laughs> the, the A3, well, not quite exactly the same thing, but almost. The A36 Apache came about because of one of those wonderful political things where the budget didn't allow to have any more fighters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, the U.S. government goes, no, we've spent too much money on fighters already. We can't have any more fighters in the budget. So what they do is they take this very promising P-51 Mustang that the Brits are saying is amazing. We should have more of these. And they know where they want more of them. They put dive brakes on it and slightly thicker wings. And they call it a dive bomber and get it in the budget like that. And get several hundred of these things built. And they, they're pretty good, actually. They do well. Uh, mainly because the P-51 is an amazing airframe and really, really good. Yeah. So that's what your A-36 Apache is. It's a P-51 Mustang that's had dive brakes hung off it and thicker wings for budgetary purposes so they could slip it in in a different part of the budget. Yeah. Oh, in love the middle defense. of a war, Brad. Yeah, in I the know. middle of a war. <laughs> gotta love defense spending. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, that would crack me up. Yeah, that's oh, it's funny um, just how many of those little instances happen. You know, you see vehicles being modified, you know, in World War Two on the table, you know, in, in, in the battlefield, you know, famous uh, like the funnies, for example, being, mm -hmm. you know, deployed, you know, created on the spot for a, a need or being made out of, you know, old, you know, French vehicles. The Germans were taking French vehicles and modifying them. But to hear about something being done at the factory level, at you know, budget level. That modification <laughs> is something procurement else. procurement level. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's bonkers. Mm. Uh, yes, indeed. Truth uh, is stranger uh, than fiction. Yes. The, the, other, uh, the other shining example is the um, Sturmovic, the Soviet Sturmovic, which is um, not a great fighter, but it's certainly not just um, an easy pushover bomber either for that matter so mm. yeah there, there are a few kind of like the fall between two stools so we'll see how we go but for the moment i'm st staying strong no points for bombers no points you for just bombers. get good given them in scenarios well i look forward to speaking to you in six months andy when you're saying hey i put points on bombers no that's right i'm kidding yes I'm kidding. <laughs> my hide hurts now yeah <laughs>
well, Andy, <laughs> oh, sorry, that, that, that was more amusing than I thought it was. Um, I, I hate to say it, our time is uh, drawing near a close. Um, is there anything else that you would like to hint, tell us about, um, stories of glory you'd like to share? Anything else you'd like to uh, pass on to uh, fans of Blood Red Skies before we shuffle off this audio coil? Um, more stuff coming is all I can say. I've been really busy over the last few months doing squadron boxes and aces for Blood Red Skies because we've got releases all through this year. Um, so more on the horizon and, you know, we start to look forward to next year when we're hoping to hit up the Pacific War in more detail. Oh, yeah. I am very excited about that. That will be cool. (laughs) Well, excellent. Well, thank you, Andy. Um, and yeah, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Your knowledge about fighter combat in World War II is astonishing, and you always have great anecdotes to share. So thank you very much for coming back to uh, share them with us. Um, And thank you, listener, you right there who's listening to us right now. Um, We do know at Warlord Games that podcasts don't cost money. Uh, You don't have to pay to listen to this today. But uh, time is precious, and you took the time to listen to this today. So we would like to take the time to say thank you very much. We do appreciate it, and uh, we thank you very much for um, being interested in the games that Warlord makes. Uh, If you have any feedback for me, the host, or for the podcast in general, or a direction you would like us to go, please contact me. Um, You can find me through my other podcast Facebook page, um, that's Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E podcast. Um, if you search that up on Facebook, you will find me. And you can message and let us know all your sneers, jeers, abuses, and um, other positive things that you would like, like us to do. And we do love the feedback. So thank you very much, as I said before. And good night.